From the newsroom of the Rockford Register Star, here's what's new today. I'm Scott Yates, multimedia journalist with the Rockford Register Star. Today, we get to listen in on a full meeting of the Register Star editorial board. The board has begun its considerations of who to endorse in the race for Winnebago County State's Attorney in the Republican primary elections to be held on March 17. On Wednesday, the board met with Republican candidate Jay Hanley. On Thursday, the board is scheduled to meet with Republican David Gill, and that conversation will also be recorded for a future podcast. Now, let's drop in on the editorial board's conversation with Jay Hanley. Okay, uh, well, good, uh, good morning. Uh, this is our first podcast with uh, candidates for state's attorney of Winnebago County. I'm Wally Haas, opinion editor. We're going to go around the table and uh, introduce ourselves. Jay Hanley is the candidate for today. Uh, to my left. I am uh, Mark Baldwin, executive editor. Michael Smith, community member. Jim Rachi, general manager. Isaac Guerrero, reporter. Kevin Haas, I'm the Metro editor, and here is a reporter, not a member of the editorial board. Jody Pear, county community member. All right, well, thank you all for being here. Uh, let's, uh, we'll start things off uh, easily. Just tell us a little bit about yourself and what qualifies you for this office? Sure. So my, my name is Jay Hanley. I'm running for Winnebago County State's Attorney. I'm actually jealous of the mayor. He, he came yesterday, and before he gets um, quizzed by you guys, he gets to declare it Wally Haas Day. I mean, if that's not <laughs> – I can't do that. So um, I'm a little bit of a disadvantage. Uh, I guess I could – maybe it's Kevin Haas Day today. I don't know. I As someone with no power at all, I deem today Kevin Haas Day. But, uh, so I'm born and raised in Rockford, Illinois. Uh, my wife was a Navy brat, so she was all over the world, actually. Um, but we um, happily have boomeranged back to Rockford and are raising two young sons here in Rockford. Um, we are also foster parents. We haven't had a long-term placement in some time, um, however we have in the past. Uh, I'm a product of Catholic education. I went to St. Peter's Cathedral and Boylan Catholic High School. I went away for college. I went to Providence College in Rhode Island. Um, then I went to law school in Chicago, Chicago Kent College of Law. Before that, I worked in New York and Chicago. Uh, then I came back and worked for Paul Lovely. That was the first legal job I had as an assistant state's attorney. Um, after about two and a half years there, I, I wanted to be a federal prosecutor and was lucky enough to be hired by the District of Arizona. So my wife was not my wife at the time. She became my wife shortly after the move, and we had both our children there, and Tucson was an amazing um, time and, and the job, which hopefully we'll talk about later. But uh, kids were getting school age and all family and friends were back here and Rockford has a funny way of pulling you back. So we came back and I started working for Hinshaw and Culbertson and I'm currently the legal director of the Rock River Water Reclamation District. How do you judge the effectiveness of the office today and what improvements can be made? Sure, so I think there are plenty of statistics out there that you could use to judge the office, and, and those are important. There was a recent article I know that you guys put out about the, um, really the, the lack of success at trial. But I think the, the biggest issue right now facing the state's attorney in that office is the culture of the office. 
And the number that I continually come back to is the number of attorneys actually in the office. And I can't tell you today exactly what that, um, what that number is. I know very recently it was down to, I think, 32 attorneys. That office should be staffed between 45 and 50 attorneys. So in terms of a number, that's a very important number. And are you saying that's because people don't want to work in the office right now because of what, the caseload, the, the management, what's the? So there's a lot of different factors. And I will get to specifics, but I think it's mostly all culture. I think there's a culture of fear there. I think they're, they're, the attorneys there don't feel trusted. They don't have the confidence to do their jobs as they should. Adding to that, there is a devastating caseload that they each have that makes your job just for lack of a better word, not fun. Um, then layer on top that you have McHenry County or some other county calling you and offering you $20,000 more to have less of a caseload, probably similar responsibility, and to remove yourself from the culture in that office. Let me back up a second. I take no pleasure in criticizing a prosecutor who has done it for 35 years. She has been a, a public service public servant for a long time. And the other issue is, right, most of this is anecdotal. That number 32 is an actual number. We could find that out within a matter of an hour. But the anecdotal evidence and the fact of so many attorneys having left shows that the culture is a problem in that office. So I continually go back to that. And, and why I keep talking about culture and maybe not so much the numbers is this. A lot of those factors have been there for a long time. Low pay, high workload. It's just kind of a, the reality of being a, a, a prosecutor in the county system. But when I worked for Paul Logley, I remember this. I lived at home. I was 30 years old living with my parents. I had a high caseload, but I would have ran through a brick, brick wall for Paul. And I didn't agree with everything that he did or said. Um, and I would have done the same for Nicolosi and the same for Briscato the very short time that I worked for Joe. And that's the type of inspiration, that's the type of culture that has to be created. Um, and how do you do it? I don't want to take the word, but I think you asked that, right? So how, how are you going to do that? So I can get to specifics, but this is one thing I would do. The very first day, I would have a stand-up meeting, and I would say to every single one of those people, I trust you. And it's basically that's it. I would use that sentence. And I think the concept of trust is so important, and we can talk about it, but sometimes you just have to give it. And those people in that office are working hard. They take an oath to seek justice every day, and I know they are doing that, but they need to be trusted from their state's attorneys, from their state's attorneys specifically. And then I would cultivate that trust in a number of ways. First and foremost, I would give them ownership of their cases. You have kind of prosecutorial policies and so there are certain thresholds and cases where you yourself as the prosecutor handling that file can make the decision and whatever those are right now they're going up meaning you're going to have more discretion over your caseload lawyers are sometimes hard to manage because they are so independent and they, they, they take ownership of this file they're really good at that taking ownership but if they aren't allowed to make decisions on that and feel like they're going to be second guessed and don't have the confidence to say yeah, we will plead this from 20 years to 15 years or from, you know, a two years probation to one year's probation or whatever the case may be. If they don't have the confidence or the ability to do that, the system grinds to a halt and it, that's where the culture is problematic. So I'll give, trust my assistance, our assistance, pardon, 
give them ownership of their cases. Um, the other thing is, and, and I can talk about recruitment, which is a little bit of a separate issue, um, but there has to be some direction. They have to know what the priorities of the office are, and that's, I think, really important. When I was a federal prosecutor, well, the, the national DOJ comes out with their four or five priorities each year, and I think that's really important because when you got a file, you understood what the priorities of the office were. So as an example, if you got a terrorism case, you knew you were going to have that one, you were really good, right? Because they only gave those to the best prosecutors, that you were going to have the best uh, detectives and, and federal agents working on that, and that this wasn't a case that you could just plead out for on a, res like a resource management type of situation. And by the way, in Tucson, Arizona, we didn't have any terrorism cases coming through. We had some in Phoenix, but we had some serious cases. My point is, you've got to let the assistants know what the priorities are. And, and that's really important. And that is really important for your job and this idea of having ownership and being able to give those kind of directives or priorities and then allow them to go do their jobs. And that, that would go such a long way in solving a lot of these problems. I mean, really, in changing the culture. Part of it's just, of course, the soft skills. You know, do you, do you write thank you notes? Do you say hello? Do you shut your door? When you're in your office, um, those are some some basic things that I, of course, have learned along the way. Being in a director of the Reclamation District is a great example of I've got to exude a certain leadership quality and, and understand that I'm being looked at. I mean, all those things are important, and I believe I have those skills. But um, we've got to change the culture. I think you asked me essentially for the number one issue, and I think that's the number one issue. So how, how do you balance, okay, you, you know, you deal with a lot of young attorneys, some just fresh out of school. How can you trust them before, really, they're trained to do the job? Sure. So, <laughs> so sometimes you can't, but we're going to get to how you can. Right now, one of the problems is if you start in that office right now, they literally need bodies to go to court. Like, they need someone to stand up in front of the judge. So you're handed a pile, and it's like, go to court at 9 a.m. It's true trial by fire. And that's one of the reasons that the burnout's so high, or that at least they're leaving. So you can't trust them. But they're still going to have to go to court pretty quickly upon being hired. And one of the things that is very clear is they need in-court instruction. So oftentimes, and I was blessed because I was a 7-Eleven attorney, and that meant when I was an intern there for the summer, while I was studying for the bar exam, I went and actually I was able to try cases under instruction. And then even when I was hired as an assistant, people would go to the bench with me. I know that, that seems like not that big a deal. It's a huge deal. And, and then sometimes I would just stand there and watch. And then eventually it was like, okay, you're handling this case. And over about the span of three months, you're pretty much running in misdemeanor court. Then you get your first trial. Well, you need a second chair to do that and to be there with you and guide you through what it is to have a trial in Winnebago County. We could talk for four or five minutes about who's coming in. One of the issues with the attorneys that are actually coming into our office right now, and, and let's get to that if you don't mind. So we typically recruit mostly from Northern Illinois. There are some exceptions to that. Northern Illinois, their top 20 to 30 percent of their class is going into the private sector. So they send about 30% of their graduating class to the public sector, and that's typically either being a federal, or I'm sorry, a public defender or an assistant state's attorney. 
Winnebago County has a reputation of being the worst. No one wants to come here. So then you think about just raw numbers. I'm not trying to disparage anyone, but we're already to the second 30%. And once you think about it, we're below the 50th percentile of that law school class. And those are who we are desperate to get. And they, quite frankly, are a little bit desperate themselves for a job after law school. Then they come in. I had done trials at Chicago Kent in clinic before I even became a 7-Eleven here and then eventually an attorney. Some of these attorneys don't have trial advocacy. And so they, like, it, they, they literally have no skills. So here's how I think we fix it, one of the ways. One, we gotta get better at recruiting. Maybe it's not just Northern Illinois. We have to be creative and I, I can talk about some of the ways we do that. Changing the culture is the biggest way. But there are a lot of retired judges, defense attorneys, and prosecutors out there. And you get 1,000 hours before you get to start paying IMRF and some of the legacy costs. So why can't you have three times a week a retired prosecutor who you are paying coming in and being the supervisor of the misdemeanor unit? These are people who have done capital crimes, and they are going to the bench with these people. And when they get their first trial, they are acting as the silent second chair. And so, because you, we don't have a lot of time. We need them to have done three or four or five trials within six months to a year, and we need them to be at a level that after about a year they can start handling felony cases. And that first year is so important because you've got to get them to love the job. And handing them 100 files and say go to court, they will never love that job. But having mentors and being guided and having it be in court and practical is one way to do that. A second way that I think is another practical solution is no court Fridays. That would be very difficult on a weekly month basis to do courthouse-wide. But you could potentially have the misdemeanor call every other Friday, for example, there's no court. Here's why that's significant. The public defenders and the state's attorney who are handling a majority of those cases can actually talk to one another and understand what it is to sit across from the aisle and talk about what a case is actually worth, which is very difficult to teach in law school, but you only do it by handling cases. What is this retail theft actually worth? And they, and they have to talk. Because if, you, if you're whispering in the back of the court, you don't get anything. It's, it's really difficult to negotiate in that way. The second reason, of course, is training. You can act, and we did this. You do joint, joint trainings where you, where you do trial advocacy for, for everyone. And there are enough retired people in this community that would ha be happy to teach those classes. I can pretty much guarantee that. Now, the judges have to cooperate. One second. When you talk about no court Friday, does that include bond court? So no, not at all. I'm talking about the specific, as the example I'm giving, a misdemeanor call. So for example, you know, every Friday morning, there's a misdemeanor call, which is meaning the misdemeanor case is up that day and you go to court. Um, in the afternoon, you may also have the, a call as well. And the idea would be, if it's every Friday is probably not realistic, but every other Friday. Mm -hmm. Bond court, you gotta have every day. Yeah. Um, one thing that would to, to extend on this is maybe it's once a quarter where the entire courthouse on Fridays or even just Friday afternoons is not having court. Th that has happened before. Um, there was a symposium that the chief judge put on about best practices in reducing recidivism. The courthouse was essentially shut down for a day. It's a big deal, but it can be done. And you can do it on a micro level with the misdemeanor court. So those are some practical ideas. Um, would that take cooperation from the from the judges? Absolutely. I mean, they're the only ones who could bless that. So that that's a request that I would have to go and make. Um, have you floated that idea? I haven't. No, no, I haven't. Um, 
I think it would be received fairly well. I, I think it would be the negotiation of how, how often. Functioning of their court. That's right. The other thing that you could do on an emergency basis, and I hesitate to say this because I'm running for office, but I think it's important to be forthright, is there may be a three-month period where you have to accept less cases. If you have, if I have to hire 20 people, I'm almost certainly not going to be able to hire 20 new people because that would be devastating. I've got to get try to get some people from other offices with some experience, ideally half of those people. But let's just say you're bringing 10 brand-new attorneys in. You might have to accept less cases and allow them to to get up to speed, and then you're back after three months at a regular clip. That's uncomfortable to say, right? Because that means you're not accepting cases where someone's been arrested. But that's the kind of the dire straits that I really think we're in. We've December 2020. We've got to fix it. We've got to start, and, and there's got to be some probably some drastic things those first six months to a year to get us back to a to a healthy. Uh, number of attorneys and really a healthy office. I, I know that, um, you know, the number, and I think 32 is, the, that's the last number we've reported, I believe, in terms of attorneys in the office. You know, we've been tracking that for a long time. Um, I'm curious as to whether there are ways, and it will take you a while, as you acknowledge, to build up, to, to, to hire a cadre of attorneys. Um, are there are there technological expedients or any other uh, tactics or strategies that can help you manage through a, a period of uh, of severe staff shortages? Probably not. I, I'm not sure. I probably not. I, I think one of the there's always a tension between the administrators and the attorneys in terms of how much support work administrators can do versus what the attorneys are doing. Let's just take a basic, basic example of filing. As I understand it now, the attorneys are doing their own filing. That takes a long time. I, I never had to do that when I was in that office as a misdemeanor attorney. So that's an example of kind of an operational thing that maybe we should change that. But the technology part of it is more about just the office embracing that and the newer attorneys are going to do everything on a laptop they're going to have all their case files available electronic discovery is part of that so the electronic discovery would help because the idea of going to court and you know you i give you the discovery and then you say well i have to read it next week and then of course we don't talk because we never get to talk uh so that's it there are technological advances in in terms of Getting attorneys up to speed, knowing how to do their jobs, probably not, th th that I can think of. And maybe I'm not understanding the question completely, but I, there are some operational things to kind of free up time. I don't know how many of those are actually technology-based. Some of them are. Given the county's budget constraints, how are you going to be able to hire 10 new attorneys? Well, so in, in, as I understand the budget, it allows for at least 45 attorneys. And as I understand the 2020 budget, that is the case. Some have said it's 50 attorneys. I, I don't know the numbers well enough and, and what people get paid. So I think the money's there to actually hire, with one exception, in the sense that if I want to hire 10 laterals, 
the money's probably not there. So someone who's been an, an experienced attorney for five or six years, and so that's where, that's the ideal situation. You don't want to hire 20 new attorneys. And what's probably not been accounted for, I can almost guarantee, is what those laterals would cost to come here. Let me back up, though, because I think it's important to educate you a little bit on why being a prosecutor in Winnebago County is pretty awesome and why it's actually an attractive job. A lot of people think it's not an attractive job. Well, prosecutors, and to some extent law enforcement, are a little bit sick in the head in some ways in that we want to do the worst of the worst. And if you go to, let's say, McHenry County, it might be five years before you see a felony and you get to first share a felony. And it might be 10 before you actually see a violent crime or something gang related. You come to Winnebago County, you're gonna do that within probably two years. And I know that sounds really weird, but it's actually an attractive place if you wanna be a trial attorney, if you wanna really cut your teeth, you can come here. And if you change the culture and you, and you point that out, I think you're gonna get some prosecutors that are gonna to wanna to come here. Going back to this culture thing, and, and maybe we can move on at some point, but and I wanna bring this up. They're gonna leave after three years. That has been the case at every prosecutor's office for the last 100 years. But you have to make it so that they're better off after the three years. First of all, you don't want them to leave after two, you wanna get them for three, so you wanna stretch that initial period out. And you gotta lean into it. So you have five new attorneys come in, you're gonna train them all equally, because you hope one or two of them becomes your trial dogs, your, your, your great trial attorneys, and they stay. The rest of them are gonna go, but so what? You've made them good trial attorneys. The bar, meaning the private attorneys in the firms, like it because you've trained them for them and they appreciate it and then sometimes when you're calling on them or maybe there's a relationship that grows and then you hope that your reputation also is that when they come out of winnebago county they're great trial attorneys they train the heck out of those kids and then the law student who's sitting there in his third year isn't saying well i don't want to go to winnebago county i want to go to winnebago county because hanley will work and he will write a recommendation letter for you and I will get trained and I will be in a better position three years down the road than I was when I started. And that's not happening right now. So that's another thing that I kind of forgot to mention. And I know we're talking about this a lot, we can move on, but. Right. Now, you addressed some of this in your op-ed, but uh, you know, how do we deal with domestic violence in this community? I know you're a supporter of the Family Peace Center. What's that support going to look like you know, in reality? Sure. So. In a general sense, it's resource allocation. It goes back to the priorities idea. The hardest cases, the most labor-intensive cases are t pretty much domestic violence cases. I think partially through your efforts, the public is under understands that, all right? And they understand the difficulties in prosecuting them. The mayor's office has done a really good job of educating people about the struggle of being a survivor and what it means to testify and the challenges there. And any prosecutor is already aware of those things, but the public is becoming aware and acknowledging that these are take more resources, more time, and they're difficult. So what does that mean? The resources have to be shifted to those cases, and so they have to become a priority. One of the myths of the criminal justice system is that every case is treated the same. I think anyone who actually thinks about it understands that's not true, and that you actually don't prosecute every case to the full extent of the law. Because if you did, 95% of the cases wouldn't plea, which is how many cases plea. So why does that matter? Because you've got to determine, if we care about domestic violence cases, then our best prosecutors, our best detectives are gonna work on those cases. We are going to take the time to do it and to be successful. 
And your attorneys, who when I talked about knowing what the priorities of the office are, are saying, okay, this is a priority of the office. I can't plead this one out just for the sake of resource management. I've got to take this one to the map, and I'm going to be supported in doing so. So that's kind of a culture shift as well. The Family Peace Center, the, the bare minimum would be two victim witness coordinators, at least one of whom is bilingual. There also should be an attorney, at least one, assigned to that to the Family Peace Center. Where it's worked best is where the entire domestic violence unit is actually in the, the, uh, the center, the, the Peace Center. That's really difficult. That takes the money. It, you, that's probably three or four years down the road. One of the in-betweens, and some, I think it was Brooklyn, New York, where they had some of their 7-Elevens actually handling some misdemeanor domestic violence cases and that they were putting them with adequate supervision in the Family Peace Center. That was working fairly well because it was a good training ground on how to deal with witnesses, how to deal with these difficult cases, and of course, they, you know, they handled them as if they were kind of felonies and really serious cases, which of course as they should be, but there are ways in which to support it without moving the entire domestic violence unit to that office. That is the goal, that is the ideal. In the short term, as I said, it's two victim witness coordinators and, a, and one prosecutor assigned in, in the building. How, how would you measure success in that area? It wouldn't be trial stats at first. It can't be because you haven't taught the attorneys how to do it and you haven't diverted the resources there. And let me come back to something real quick. We have a domestic violence coordinating group that is nationally known. And people come and visit it for how great it is. And Judge Collins is a huge part of that. And yet we have some of the worst prosecution rates of domestic violence cases. What, how does that gap happen? That is me being critical of the current office and the problem. But you've got to train them up. So for me to say we're going to go from 42% to 62% in the next year, it's great to say. I don't know how we, you know. So it is conviction rate. Um, trial successes. I think one of the things that I would like to start tracking is how many cases are we taking to trial or winning or, or even pleading out with a successful plea without a victim. And that's, that's another culture shift that will take time and resources. But, you know, the idea of shrugging your shoulders and saying, well, the victim wouldn't testify so that we dismiss the case. There are times when that absolutely has to happen, when you can't corroborate. But there are also times when you build the case up similar like a murder. You assume you're not going to have um, the survivor there. Um, there are other prosecutorial ways, and you can put them in front of the grand jury so they're on the record. That's sometimes controversial, depending on the case. I can explain that a little bit more if you'd like. But there are, I would like to track that. Um, but there's also something else, Wally. If you ask for the numbers, you're not going to get them. So it's just tracking them at all. One other thing that doesn't go directly to your question, but I think it's important with domestic violence. And I think you have to look at it systemically as well. So let's say you have 100 domestic violence cases. I think it's okay to pick out 10 or 20 that are the most important. And it's not necessarily on the charged crime or even necessarily the injuries. So take strangulation for an example. Someone, the mayor is famous for saying if you if you hit a girl, you're an asshole. If you strangle her, you're probably a killer. If, you, if there's 
evidence of strangulation, the percentage of lethality goes up to like 800%. It is one of the biggest risk factors. So is there a data set? Are we keeping data? So they actually do a um, assessment, and that's how they find out sometimes, because sometimes the charge isn't actually strangulation, but they, they talk about the fact that. And then there's the medical aspect of it, because there's a certain test that can be done, because there's oftentimes not physical signs. But let's say the, my guess is that the prosecutors oftentimes might don't know whether there's, there's a strangulation history, but I also don't know whether those are at the top of the pile. And this somewhat gets a little bit controversial, but if you have 100 domestic violence, cases. I think the ones with strangulation should be at the top of the list. Those are the ones where our resources are, and those are the ones that I'm saying to my attorneys, no, you can't plead this out for something that's not worth. And you've got to find that victim, and we've got to corroborate his or her story. We can't lose this one. And here's why. It might not even be because of the severity of the charge itself. It's because of the history of that person. And so I think just the use of data, period, would be a step in the right direction. And then some of the ideas that I talked about, about kind of slicing and dicing that. But, to, for, but for me, I think it'd be irresponsible for me to say, we're going to go from 42% to 62% in the span of a year. Because I can't say that after I just spent the first 20 minutes talking about how we've got to train essentially between 10 and 20 new attorneys, and they're oftentimes between the handling those cases, either on the misdemeanor level, but e even the felony level. Will you share that data with the public and how? Absolutely. So I, I'm a big dashboard fan. I mean, saying that in 2020 is ridiculous, right? I mean, those have been around for a long time of whether it's the Y or other organizations, there's always a dashboard. Just so you know, the, I've got the one that Sheriff Myers and Christensen that used to use when they used to meet every Monday to talk about the jail population. They've been around. Gus Gettner's got the, we've got the software to create the dashboards. So I want to create a dashboard. I have a platform which I can show you, but there's three particular numbers that I want to measure. One of them being the, kind of the most specific, but I do want to, I do want to be, talk to the public about retention. So I want to, I'll just let the public know where we're at. Are we at 32 or are we at 45? I also want to also track retention in the sense of length of service. And that's really new hires. So I wanna say, okay, our new hires leaving after a year and a half or three years, and there's a big difference. If they leave at a year and a half, man, you really probably have wasted effort. If, you, if you, they leave after three, your effort's been worth it. But those are, with respect to retention, those are some stats I'd like to um, create on the dashboard. The other one is this 180 days. And this goes to the efficiency and effectiveness of moving defendants through the system. 2018, the average, average, time it took to move a defendant from arrest to final disposition was 345 days. So let me put some meat on that. Well, one of the things I'd have is a dashboard that measures that average time. Specialty courts are probably going to be, have to be accepted from this number because they, by their nature, should take a long time. But let me put some meat on this bone for a second. So Mark, sitting next to me, is charged with a crime. And I get what I think is a pretty good sentence of three years in the Department of Corrections. Well, Mark's been sitting in our jail for a year. He gets good time. He basically is going to DOC and turning right back around. We paid for that. So it's horribly inefficient. So I'm not talking about, let's back up a second. Everyone who comes to the criminal justice system is going somewhere. And if you're charged with a felony, it's usually probation or the Department of Corrections. Let's get them there sooner. In the same way, if you should have been on probation and we agree to a probational sentence and you've been in jail for 345 days, what does that do for anybody? 
you probably come out of, you might come out of jail worse than you were after you committed the crime. So this efficiency goes to the direct effectiveness of the system. One of the things I'm gonna, I wanna do, and again, I talked about this 180 number, that's the average I wanna get to. It's not gonna be within the first six months, but I think after two years we can do it. And that's, that would be on that dashboard. One of the ways you can do it is through a fast track court. Ogle County has done this, other counties have done it. It's been tried here. It's not a new idea. Some of the judges have actually run campaigns on it. And what you do is you have someone who's charged with a nonviolent crime and you, you have certain criteria they have to meet. And the idea is they're arraigned on a Monday and their sentencing is on a Friday. And the truth is the plea deal that they're offered is good enough that their attorney says you have to take this. And then if they don't, then you've gotta have what would be the hammer and you've gotta take that to trial. But you get it to the point where you've created the system where it behooves the defendants to plead and you get them in and out. And I'm talking about non, you know, nonviolent offenders. Well, give us an example of what kind of offenses. So a, retail, a theft over $1,000. Okay, and I'm not sure if that's class three or class four as I sit here, felony. Uh, but that's a case where, okay, they've, they're a nonviolent offender, they don't have much criminal history, and so then you give them a deal that they look at, especially because what they're facing in terms of the jail time, and it's a non-jail sentence, and it, it's a favorable sentence, and to the point where, again, their defense attorney says, you should take this deal. And then if they don't, the deal can't get better. So that, so that Everyone in the courthouse kind of gets gets the rhythm. It's like here's your chance. I don't know that I don't think that that's going to affect our crime rate in Rockford. I think it's going to go a long way in helping divert resources to the cases that matter. And this is kind of the 1090 rule. And I'll come back to your dashboard question. I know we're getting a little bit sidetracked. My understanding is, well, you know what? Let's move to the third part of the platform, and that's concentrating and prioritizing the prosecution of violent crime and violent criminals. I've heard from law enforcement anecdotally that about 10% of our criminal population is causing 90% of our problems. We know who these 10% are. So one of the reasons the fast track court helps is because you free up resources. We have a finite amount of resources. And so if we're gonna prioritize violent crime and violent criminals, then we've gotta move resources to, to, to that. And so not spending 90 to 180 days on that retail theft allows that prosecutor and that our office to then concentrate on all the cases you're reading about on the front page of the paper and spending time on domestic violence cases and meeting with survivors and working those cases up. The interesting thing about that number, Wally, eventually I want to get to tracking trial success, but in the short term, I would track um, the city's and the county's violent crime statistics and specifically shootings. I think that's kind of the number one issue. The survey of Rockford residents showed that, that that's kind of their number one issue. And I'd like to piggyback on that, or kind of already as a dashboard on that. But eventually, yes, we would be tracking our trial successes as a part of that dashboard. And there's probably 10 other statistics we could talk about and probably should. But you also know when you Sometimes there's a simplicity aspect, right? If I have 20 different statistics there, it loses all meaning. That's right, yeah. And, and that's why this, these priorities I, I talk about, because I want to be very clear with the public. These are the three things I care about. The culture of the office, moving defendants through the system efficiently and effectively, and prioritizing violent crime. And here's what the great, I'm, and I'm not trying to toot my own horn, but you all, at least in this room right now, know what the priorities are going to be if I get elected. Have you ever in the history known what the, what the priorities in the Office of State's Attorneys are now? 
If you ask the assistants there right now, what are the priorities? They're not going to tell you because they don't know. And that's half the battle, is having not only the attorneys in that office know, but the public know. Here's what we're concentrating on. Here are the priorities of the office. And that doesn't mean, and I've got them, there's 10 other issues that we could talk about. Juvenile justice. I mean, all kinds of things that, are, mental health, all the things that are important. But those are the three. All right. All right so since we can't talk about all 10 of those. Sure, I understand. Pick, you pick uh, what you think would be like 3A or priority number four. Well, okay. So, well, let me talk about the gun court because it goes to both moving defendants through the system more efficiently and to prioritizing violent crimes and shootings. So Providence, Rhode Island, where I went to the college, actually is one of the first places this was done. And it wasn't necessarily its own specialty court. It could be, but it was its own court call. One judge heard all gun cases. There was a prosecutor or two assigned to the gun cases. Gun cases are pretty much possession cases, either possess the gun illegally or not. There are certainly exceptions, of course, when the gun is shot. But they can be disposed of fairly quickly. But the, what you say to the community is, listen, these are going to be disposed of quickly and harshly. If you, have a, if you carry a gun illegally in Winnebago County, we're not going to accept it. And there's the exception to the guy who forgot his void card and is at home and he's in his car. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the, the people shooting guns and, and creating kind of havoc. So that gun court, again, shows a shift of resources and shows it being a priority. And then you get a prosecutor who is capable of prosecuting those cases well. Um, there's an offset of that, which involves the, the federal uh, prosecutor's office, but we can get to that later. We talked about the dashboard. That's a huge part. Um, I would love to do a conviction review unit using retired judges, defense attorneys, and prosecutors on a volunteer basis. And what they do is they review cases for wrongful convictions. And there's only a specific subset that would be eligible. You have the criteria. They review those cases, do most of the legwork, and then they would refer to uh, uh, probably a three-person portion of the actual state's attorney's office that then reviews those and decides what, if anything, will be done. Well, real quickly, what is that being done? Uh, there's about 60 places across the country that do that. I think uh, there's, a, there's a registry that tracks them. It's called the National Registry of Exonerations. And uh, about 400 cases have been cleared so far mm -hmm. uh, based on these, they, they often call them conviction integrity units. Yes. And, uh, uh, some dedicate staffers to it, some do it volunteer. You're, you're so I'm talking Afterwards, I'll give you the article. It's the Kane County State's Attorney is um, what, what, lays it out. You said a certain subset of cases would be convictions would be eligible. What? What's so sometimes the criteria is that the, um, you know, that there's actual innocence, not that they're guilty of a lesser crime. Actual innocence usually you have typically serious crimes, or, and then, um, you know, they're not patently frivolous. You just buy their. And then lastly, uh, there has to be new incredible evidence offered. Now, there's probably four or five other criteria I could think of. So, and then oftentimes there's what you refer to as like there's, there's kind of the handoff. So I give it to the, the volunteer unit. They go and do a lot of the work, and there maybe is a detective or two retired assigned to that on a volunteer basis. Then of the 10 cases they were referred to, they come back with one or two and say, yeah, there's some real problems here. And then we have a team within the office of three or four attorneys. They might they take a second look if I'm not on that or, or I'm on that, and then we say, you know what, we've got to remedy this. What's great about it is it's Republican states' attorneys, it's Democratic states' attorneys, it's red states, blue states. Everyone recognizes the inefficiency and just the unjustness of wrongful convictions. But 
there's not a lot of resources, right? You got to rely on these volunteers and, and they have had success. Um, that's something I'd love to do. Man, I want to talk about juvenile justice and mental health, but I do want to talk about it. Yeah, sure. Go ahead. You know, uh, these con uh, conviction integrity units, um, they need a certain layer of independence. I think uh, there's a stat from, from the New York Times that 18% uh, of people exonerated, DNA or not, um, were actually exonerated after pleading guilty. And sometimes uh, prosecutors, especially district attorneys or, or state's attorneys, don't want their integrity units to look at guilty pleas. How could your unit have that level of independence so that it's, you know, uh, adding a layer of accountability or, or even being a watchdog to to pleas or, or, or trial convictions? Well, it's a little bit of a tough question because I want a job that gives me, just by its, by its title, unfettered discretion. Mm -hmm. And so what you're asking is to get rid of some of that discretion, and that assumes that the law would even allow it. At some point, the decision is going to rest with the state's attorney. And so what you want and why this job is so amazing is you have to trust your state's attorney and trust in their independence. Because, yes, there will be prosecutors who will not want to admit they're wrong. There will be prosecutors in that office who handle that plea and who will swear up and down that this person is guilty. And you've got to have the guts to do it. But you also can separate so you can have an attorney or two, maybe your attorney who handles appeals or your attorney who handles drug crimes, and right, most of these are going to be your violent crimes, and so they're removed from it. And, of course, if you had handled that case, you couldn't be on that you know, unit or on that case. So I think there's some operational ways to do it. As I sit here right now, I wouldn't recommend – I'm not going to tell you I'm going to give up that discretion ultimately on what we would look at and not. Uh, yeah, there may be room for discussion about that. Up, yeah. you know, the, the, the prosecutor, especially the top prosecutor, has, has always had uh, essentially the most power in the criminal justice system to decide whether to charge or not. But, but I'm wondering if this unit will add any layer of accountability to review after those things have had, you know, independently of, you know, are, are you going to be asking the, the CIU to review convictions or are they going to be, you know, essentially looking into looking into them in their, in their own accord? Um, so probably of their own accord. So again, the way that Kane County being the example, and we're getting into the, how the sausage is made, but they actually have, they're the intake for it. So again, if one of you came and said, hey, my brother's innocent and I'm gonna tell you why. There's someone in the office that actually just takes that. And sometimes it's a non-attorney. Then they say, okay, does this meet our criteria? Sometimes internal to the office, sometimes they'll give it to the volunteer group and say, does this meet our criteria? And then they determine which they're gonna look deeper in. Once they do the work, then they give it back. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So there's some operational safeguards there. To, it is a discussion I can see where as this has gone on, because you're essentially saying, hey, we're telling you you were wrong. And you were wrong in a really big way. And, and to undo this wrong is going to take a ton of money and a ton of resources, but we think you should do it. And so you have to have the prosecutor with the guts to say, okay, we'll do it. And it's been done and it's been received well by it's pretty much admitted that it is a good idea. The last thing I want to talk about, and again, these are somewhat maybe too operational, but part-time employees, I think we've got to get better at using them within the office, and that's attorneys outside of the workforce. There's tons of them. They're really good. Sometimes they have, you know, oftentimes, in my experience, they're women who have had children who don't want to work full-time or aren't yet there because their children are younger. A huge untapped resource, particularly at the civil portion of the state attorney's office, which we haven't talked about, 
which by the way is a huge part of it. Um, so I don't need to go any further than that, but, but I think that's, there's, they've done a little bit of that there, but I think that's a resource that because of necessity, we're gonna have to use. I, I do wanna go back um, on the civil side really, um, and, and dovetailing with your comment about the importance of, of, a, of, a, of a state's attorney's absolute in, independence. Um, you know, we've seen, frankly, the, the incumbent, the current state's attorney, really side take a, take sides in the in the back and forth between the chairman and the board. Um, and I realize the state's attorney is the legal counsel for the county, but how would you manage that relationship? differently, better than what you've seen? Because it's really, there, you know, to us, and we've editorialized very frankly on this, it's, it, it's been unseemly. Sure, and, and the truth is, you, I, while I read the paper and, and I'm somewhat of an insider, you still probably know more than I do in terms of sources and otherwise. However, what you're saying is very clear. I agree 100%. There's kind of a simple way, and that's making sure that the county board and the people that you advise know exactly what your role is. And it can sometimes be simplified as this. When we're in the room in a committee meeting, you're going to ask me whether it's legal or not. And I'll tell you, you can go out in the hallway and ask me if it's a good idea or not. And too often they're suggesting or as to whether or not they think it's a good idea or good for the county. And that's not your role as really any attorney, but particularly the attorney for the county. So there's clearly some overstepping. And it's even going farther. There seems to be a political, you know, the office has been politicized. I've also heard that there's like kind of communication silos, right? You have the Republican caucus and then the Democratic caucus and what's being discussed in each of those caucuses, then you break it down by committee. And that, that just has to go away. The way in which the state's attorney communicates with those, it just has to be open and transparent. You probably have to have more people cc'd on memos. There just has to be just an openness. Just bust it all open. Um, and, and the expectation too, maybe there's an expectation that you're going to side with this particular group. It's like, no, I'm not. I'm going to tell you whether it's legal or not. You make the decision on whether or not you want to do it. I'm not going to advocate one way or the other. And it's, it's so simple. I mean, you learn that your first month of law school, you understand that. So I, other than just not doing it, I, I, don't, I don't know what else to, to say. Um, I what's nice is as legal director of the district, I, that's what I do. I have a board I have to deal with. I deal with FOIA and AMA issues on an almost weekly basis. Um, it, there's an art to dealing with the board, and it's taken some time, but I'm pretty comfortable in the relationship I've gained and the way in which our board works. True, it's on a smaller scale, and they're not elected, but that experience is directly related to that part of the office. So. I think that's fairly, yeah, I think that's fairly new. Yeah, so one of the things that when I talk about giving ownership to, why is the state's attorney actually at the Thursday meetings or at committee meetings? The way it's typically worked, and I think this is how I would like it to work, is you have a civil chief that everyone trusts and that they handle the majority of the civil matter. Certainly you're advised on it and have to make some final decisions. Uh, the most recent litigation that went down yesterday is an example of something where that's an all-hands meeting and you are a part of but at the same time, and then even committee meetings, if they want a state's attorney there, why can't it be one of the eight attorneys in the civil unit? Why does it have to, why does it have to be the state's attorney? And in fact, that can oftentimes be counterproductive because it, that lends itself to potentially politicizing the issues. And a lot of the issues are fairly cut and dry, pretty black and white. 
although I'm gonna, this was almost a joke, the question of whether we should go and open or close should be fairly straightforward. And any of the attorneys in the civil division should be able to give an opinion on that. So, All right, well, I think we've reached uh, pretty much the end of our time, but in the spirit of the office, give us your closing arguments to the voters. Sure, so there's three questions that the voters should be asking themselves in determining who they should vote for. Number one, who would you rather work with? It's that simple. And that's both corroboration or collaboration pardon on the outside world, right? I have to work with the mayor, police chiefs, the county board, and so who's going to work with those people better and be a better collaborator, but also who's going to uh, inspire the assistants to literally run through a brick wall for them. So who would you rather work with? Number two, who's a better communicator? We've talked about some of the issues in the current office with how the communication both internally and particularly externally with the media, with the public, with the county board. Who's the better communicator? Number three, and most importantly, who's worthy of your trust? Unfettered discretion, a horrible culture issue, a, a toxic culture, and so who, who can you write culture eat strategy for breakfast who can you trust in that office those are the three questions who would you rather work with who's a better community communicator and who is worthy of your trust and they've got about a month and a half to educate themselves i think as they learn about the three of us really the two of us in the short term i think it's clear that i can do all three of those things better Thank you very much, and uh, that, that's a wrap for today. Thank you. My first podcast. Thanks. Appreciate it.